Hi, I'm Todd Billings, and this is the End of the Christian Life Podcast. The Christian life is a story, a story of one victory after another, right? That might seem like good news, but as I discovered anew in writing my book, The End of the Christian Life, that's not the Bible's story. And let's be honest, our lives don't exactly fit that story either, even on our best days. In this podcast, you are invited to journey with me as I talk to people who have thought deeply about what it means to live as a mortal before the everlasting God. I discovered them in the process of writing my book, and I'm still learning from them. These wise souls have walked in the dark valley themselves and with others. So let's get started. Today, I am really thrilled to have Dr. Thomas Long with us, who was a pastor, a preaching professor at Princeton, at Emory, the author of The Witness of Preaching and a lot of common seminary textbooks. But this morning, I'm here to talk with him about his book, Accompany Them with Singing, The Christian Funeral. Tom, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. It's a great pleasure, Todd. Thanks. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about your time in pastoral ministry. In the book, you describe at one point that funeral practices for the Christian funeral have drifted off course. When did you first start to get that sense that things had drifted off course? Well, when I was in the uh, parish, I was uh, typical, I think, of most uh, seminary graduates. We know that in most seminaries, the training you get for funerals is at most one class. Mm -hmm. Most brand new pastors, the first funeral they go to is one that they preside over. Hmm. Uh, That was not my situation. I had been to some family funerals before, but I did not feel particularly uh, well-equipped to uh, lead a funeral and had to learn on the fly. Uh, Fortunately, the first couple of funerals I was involved in, an older senior pastor was also uh, involved, and so I was able to learn as an apprentice. But I think Hmm. you you do learn on the job most of the time. I really learned about the drifting off course as I was writing this book. In fact, it took me 15 years to write this book. And one of the reasons it took me so long is that I changed my mind so dramatically that I ended up writing against the book that I started off to write. Oh, wow. Um, So tell us about the book you originally started to write. What I was originally going to write is that the funeral is primarily an act of pastoral care aimed at grief management. Mm, mm -hmm. And in looking at the history of the Christian funeral, I realized that addressing grief is, of course, an important part of the funeral, but that's simply a small sliver of the total compass of what a Christian funeral is about. And Mm. I realized that it was well-meaning pastors like myself who had artfully dismantled uh, the Christian framework of the funeral. So the book is really an attempt to recover 
something of what the Christian funeral should be theologically, historically, and uh, socially. Yeah, it is a really great book. And let me mention to you how I first discovered it. It was a few years after starting teaching at the seminary, and every year I would ask graduates who were in pastoral ministry, what was your biggest surprise? What was your biggest area of challenge, particularly as it relates to theology and ministry? And again and again, they said funerals. Yeah. And for a number of them, they were in their mid to late 20s. They had maybe attended one or two funerals in the past. And then they're doing 12 funerals a year in pastoral ministry. And they're disoriented. And they're like, oh, my goodness, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And you sense that the stakes are very high. Yeah. Because uh, people are often, if not in open distress. They're certainly in, it's a time of need. And you're the last person standing. The physicians have all fled. And there you are with the words of life. And uh, you realize that uh, this is an act of ministry that is very important. Yeah. Well, after I heard that, we did some searching and found your book. And it really did address a lot of this need that they were thinking about of how do I fit into this place. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there was just a lot of confusion about what a funeral is for. And so I've had pastors who are graduates come to me frequently saying, well, what do I do when they come to me with a plan for a funeral that's totally different than (laughs) what I wanted or what I would think of as a Christian funeral? And then a number of them were at the point, wow, I don't even know exactly what a Christian funeral is for. Um, And so your book really gives a framework for that. Well, thanks. One one thing I was going to say is that um, one of the ways I think that funerals have drifted off course is that we have all become interior decorators of our own liturgies. And the question, what would your mother have wanted in her service? Mm -hmm. is a question that only a very modern person could ask. That Cotton Mather would never have asked that of a parishioner. Uh Uh (laughs) Uh, You know, it's it's almost as if, what would you like in your Lord's Supper this morning? Um, Yeah, yeah. As as if we have responsibility to plan something entirely different uh, every funeral. Every funeral is invented new. And um, people don't have the resources or memories to be able to construct those. yeah. I mean, that points to some of the underlying factors with some of these funeral trends that are very personalized and maybe consumer-oriented. Yeah. In a conversation with Jamie Smith, who's a friend of mine, James K.A. Smith, we were yes. talking about funerals, and he said, well, I had realized that the wedding had sort of turned into Disney in some sense, <laughs> um, but the more we talk about it, the more it seems like funerals have been turned into Disney. Yes, I've spent a lot of time at funeral directors' conventions, and there's always a a merchandise floor. And if you want to see where the trends are going, uh, walk around the merchandise floor of a funeral industry convention. You'll find there um, people who are marketing ways of taking bodies and turning them into granules, which are then seeded from airplanes into clouds so that your grandmother becomes a summer rainstorm. Uh All of these are really indications. We don't 
we no longer know exactly what to do with the dead. Um, One of the great pieces of wisdom of the classic Christian funeral is the body is honored and it has a movement and a direction to it. We are taking the body not only to the place of final disposition, whether that's the grave or the fire or the sea, but we're also giving this loved one into the hands of the God who gave this person to us. And so you know where you're going and you know what you're doing. Once you lose that framework, then what are we going to do with the body? And we hide it or we try to turn it into something that it's not. And you can see all that in the funeral industry at, at work today. Yeah, I've noticed at funerals that it's more and more common not to have not only a closed casket, but nobody present at all, or to have a funeral even after the burial. And this is something that when we read your book together, we're really struck by. How do we think through the dead body? Because a lot of people, a lot of parishioners were saying they didn't want much to do with the dead body. Yeah, we we are the first generation in the history of the world for whom the dead are not welcome at their own funerals. Uh, Hmm. The disappearance of the body is one of the main characteristics. And frankly, bodies are a hassle. Mm-hmm. The bodies of the dead are cost a lot in energy and emotion to deal with a, a person's body in the same way that it costs a lot in energy and emotion to deal with the bodies of the living. And a society that does not treat with tenderness the bodies of the dead is probably a society that is suspect in terms of the way it treats the living. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that the body of of a Christian is to that person like the bread and wine are to the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Hmm. Uh, They are the means by which this person negotiated the world and formed relationships. And we know better than to discard these bodies like we're doing now. When 9-11 happens, we spend years looking for every body part that has hmm. fallen into the city. We know so there how pre- is an instinct there still. Yeah. A, yeah, it's a human thing to do to, to take care of the bodies of the dead. So we've trained ourselves away from our human wisdom, as it were. Hmm. Part of this is a, a theological failure that happened, I think, to Americans in the 19th century. And it happened first with white educated suburban and urban Protestants. Hmm. Our ministers in the 19th century did not change the vocabulary sufficiently. They kept talking about heaven at funerals in ways that became increasingly implausible to people. we We have ways of understanding the language of the scripture in ways that are poetic and appeal to the imagination and open us up to the realities that lie underneath without trying to make scientific claims out of New Testament language. Uh, Drew Gilpin Faust, in her book about the Civil War, said that when there were 500,000 bodies on the battlefields of Pennsylvania and Maryland and Virginia, it overwhelmed people's theology of death. uh, Because what preachers had given us in the 19th century was a very individualistic understanding. Your grandmother dies, goes to heaven, There's Paul and Peter and Jesus uh, welcoming her uh, at Mm -hmm. the gates. Uh, That works when it's one person dying at a time, but when it's a half a million people, mass death in the Civil War, the theology couldn't hold it any longer. And so 
people started doubting the theology, and then there was nowhere for the dead to go. Hmm. They weren't going into la-la land, so where were they going? They were going into our memory banks. We'll, we'll always remember Elizabeth, or they were simply evaporating into the ether, or we had little poetic ditties like death is only a door in a garden wall and they're just on the other side of the wall and all of this became sentimental and so finally we don't know where the dead are going or or what their status is hmm. yeah i've wondered about views of heaven and what theologians call the intermediate state where the dead are until the final resurrection and how much this is influencing our views of funerals just as especially as a cancer patient i've found myself going to more funerals. Yeah. And when family members speak about the deceased and then when the preacher preaches, so many of them are talking about like, where's the person now? Right. And I don't know, maybe it's where I'm located in West Michigan, but we get a lot of, they're deer hunting now. Um, right. <laughs> I mean, one, right. one West Michigan pastor told me, you know, I had no idea how many deer there were in heaven until, you know, I became <laughs> a pastor out here. <laughs> or, you know, it's kind of like they're golfing now or whatever they liked to do. And one thing that's a little bit interesting about that is that that often corresponds with the sorts of things that come up in the service when it's a celebration of life service. So, you know, there will be pictures or video of this person golfing and this person with their parents who have died. And then you're to think, oh, well, this person is now golfing again. And this person right. is now reunited to their parents. So it's very much a, what in my book, The End of the Christian Life, I call it sort of a family reunion view right. of heaven. Right. Jesus isn't that central. I mean, Jesus enables it, but it's pretty much about family reunion and hobbies and things. Well, we know that in the 19th century, American society changed its mind about what makes a person a person and a person of worth. Hmm. Prior to this change, if we were to describe Elizabeth, who is dying or has passed away, then we would say she's George's wife and Amy and Ralph's mother, and she's a member of the Lutheran Church, and she works at the library. And we would describe her worth in terms of how she fit into the larger fabric of society. The community as a whole. The community as a whole. Uh, but when strangers started coming to town on the railroads, and we had a lot of people around we didn't know, uh, we had to figure out a way of valuing people that didn't bank so much on how they fit into the whole community. And so we began to think about how they were celebrities or stars. Do they have a lot of money? Uh, do they have a lot of power? Do they do odd things? And instead of how you fit in, it's how you stand out. And hmm. You can't be a celebrity, most of us, but you can at your funeral. And so a lot of memorial services are really trying to figure out how to make Elizabeth stand out, how hmm. her whims, she was a, a Mets fan. And mm -hmm. look at the decal of the Mets on her casket. Mm -hmm. So we tell funny stories and things, all of which are designed to turn her into a person not like the rest of us. Hmm. Originally, of course, the identity of the deceased in a Christian funeral was their baptismal identity. Hmm. And we washed Elizabeth 
when she began her Christian life in baptism, and now in death we wash her body again. We Hmm. fed her at the Lord's table all through her Christian life, and then at the grave we celebrate the Eucharist again, her last Eucharist in this life and her first taste of the Feast of Glory. We walked with her through her Christian life, bearing one another's burdens, and now we carry the burden of our sister Elizabeth to the grave. Uh, Funeral was a completion of baptism. It was Hmm. rich with baptismal uh, imagery. But now, you know, she loved Elvis Presley, and we're going to play a hunk of hunk of burning love in her memory. Mm Mm-hmm. It's ironic because one of the things I hear from pastors and I've noticed is that attendance at funerals is down, even though they have often have more slick technology and have these interesting themes that you point to, like her love of Elvis. But it seems like it's largely, if it's a celebration of life of this person and their distinctiveness, then it's not a service for all of us. Right. All of us who are baptized and all of us who are dying. It's a service about this particular person who gets their five minutes of fame right. at the funeral. And I mean, even in my lifetime growing up in Kansas, you would just attend the funeral of somebody in your church. Like, that's just what you did. Right. But now it seems to be more in a lot of places, including here in Michigan, well, if you have a special connection to the person, but it's not like this is a spiritual exercise as one who is mortal, who is going the same place that this other person has just gone. Well, I think uh, I think that's right. And we've had sort of two big waves of change. The first was the main purpose of a Christian funeral for centuries was the completion of Elizabeth's baptism and carrying Elizabeth to the place of farewell. That was what a funeral was about. Hmm. And then when Elizabeth had nowhere to go, we figured out it's not Elizabeth who's moving. It's it's me, the mourner. I'm the one who's moving from grief to stability. And so we can watch the liturgies of the church shift away from Elizabeth and toward the mourner in the late 19th hmm. century. And so hmm. the funeral became grief management. Hmm. Well, Then grief became too hard to bear with no narrative around it that gave any hope. And so we shifted again, probably in the 50s, toward not grief management, but a celebration of life. Mm -hmm. And the celebration of life carried with it all the things that you talked about, a kind of hunting around for things to be happy about at the funeral. And what we know is that the statistics of the National Funeral Directors Association show that attendance at funerals is way down Mm -hmm. all across the country. Attendance at visitations is up. Hmm. Um, Hmm. And why why would that be the case? Uh, Well, if the druggist in town dies, and he's a member of my church, and I know him, I'm his customer, but I'm not close to him. He's not a fishing buddy. He's not a relative. I'm probably... You don't share hobbies with him. Or, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not going to go to his funeral mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I can't figure out what I'd be doing there. Hmm. I can't hmm. assist with grief, and I don't know him well to celebrate. So I will go to the visitation where I can speak to the widow and to the children, and I can make a personal contact, and I feel like I'm paying my respects doing that. But participating in a liturgy called a funeral 
doesn't connect with what I understand is necessary at this point. Yeah. So in some sense, people aren't just to be blamed for not attending funerals. It fits with, you know, if the funeral service has become largely about the person and their hobbies and kind of grief therapy, intuitively, it makes more sense just to go to the visitation, you know, unless you share those hobbies and I'm not going to go to the funeral any more than I would go to um, a person I barely know would go to their baby shower. But, right, you know. right. So I'm wondering if we can chat some about some of what you found in the book to be recovered. Um, you talk about the funeral as a religious drama. I really like that image of the drama and with Christ and the life and death and resurrection of Christ taking a central role. And then you have the baptismal theme that you've mentioned. Can you just right. narrate that a little bit for us? And why would this this approach to a Christian funeral not only be more faithful, but more likely to get the whole congregation there? Yeah, it has been my experience that the best teacher— in regard to the recovery of the Christian funeral, is a funeral well done. Hmm. Most people have never participated in a funeral that is dramatically well done. And that means, I think, giving some attention to what I call the choreography of the funeral, uh, something that I certainly was never taught anything about the funeral having any choreography, but it does. Ironically, the first funeral that I went to after I published the book, was my mother's. And, Hmm. uh, of course, by gosh, I was going to do this one right um, (laughs) because I just (laughs) published a book on it. Uh And that threw me into collision with our local funeral home because the funeral home is designed for its own choreography. And that choreography is everybody gathers in their chapel And then a door opens on the side at the front, and if there's a casket, it's rolled and placed like a sofa in a furniture store window in front of the congregation. And then the funeral is conducted, and when it's over, then it rolls out a door on the other side of the building to a port carcere and placed in a hearse and taken to the cemetery or, or wherever. So only the experts are near, you know, the dead body. Exactly. And the uh body enters from the left, pauses in the middle, and then exits to the right like a bird flying through a barn. Mm -hmm. And um, so what we did was we said, no, that's not going to be the choreography we're going to use. My mother is going to come in the same door that everybody else in this congregation comes in because she's coming to worship. Hmm. And uh, so she and the family entered at the appropriate time. Words of resurrection were spoken. And we took her coffin to the front of the church, but we didn't turn it sideways. We left it feet first toward the chancel because that's the posture that a person is in when they worship. That's how they are as worshiper. Mm-hmm. By the way, the, the old rubric is if it's a minister or a priest, you turn it around, it's head first because they were leaders of worship and that's the posture that it's hmm. in. So my mother had come to worship. And yeah. then when the chapel part of the service was over, we turned her coffin around and accompanied her back out the same door that everybody else would be leaving to the hearse, and then we all went to the, or at least most of us went to the cemetery and uh, accompanied her all of the way. Now, most people have never seen that. Yeah. And there are a dozen or 20 little 
pieces like that, but make it clear that we're acting out the gospel here. And hmm. it's so uh, stunning to people who have gone to celebration of life services without a body present that they know in their souls, this is the way to do this. This is the human and Christian thing to do. Now, it's an intractable problem in some ways, because if they're not coming to them at all, even if it's a good service, they don't always see it. But people do occasionally go to funerals. They do their trajectories do cross those of the deceased and they show they show up and so if a parish if a congregation is practicing good funerals they will be not only intrinsically worthwhile but they'll be teaching the community about this hmm. in a good funeral i'm wondering how do you hold together the story of elizabeth or the person who is deceased and the more foundational story that baptism participates in of sharing in Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection? It's a great question. I think there's a macro answer to that and then some micro answers to that. The macro answer to that is if we recover the Christian funeral as an act of drama, the drama that's being acted out in its totality is a proclamation of the gospel. And so Hmm. whatever is happening to Elizabeth is already surrounded by, and she is, her life is absorbed into the larger narrative of Christ. Hmm. But there's some micro ways to do this too. I think it would be strange today if Elizabeth were not talked about at her own service, especially Mm -hmm. in the the old Reformed tradition of the Puritans. They didn't want the deceased mentioned at all in the Mm -hmm. funeral, which was a serious overreaction to the ostentatious funerals that they had observed, uh, they Hmm. felt in the Anglican church. But what we talk about is Elizabeth's life, how the grace of God was refracted through her life. So Everything we say about Elizabeth is not simply personality whims or curiosities or witticisms about her life, but Mm -hmm. how did we experience the grace of God in her life? And that doesn't mean that everything we say about Elizabeth has to be good or whitewashed. Sometimes we are obviously at the funeral of a person whose life was difficult. Mm -hmm. And our attempts to love and be loved by difficult people are also means of grace and growth and the goodness of God. And so uh, we can claim that even as we are honest about some of the things that were hard about a relationship. Yeah, that's powerful. One final question for you. I remember a time when someone my age started to attend funerals at our congregation, and she came to me just with this big smile on her face after a funeral saying, wow, there's so much joy. I mean, she was she had tears in her eyes too, but there's so much joy at this funeral. It's so much about the gospel. And she wasn't expecting that. She hadn't been trained to expect that at a funeral. Right, right. Can you think of an example where a funeral brought you joy? Yes. I'm thinking about the funeral of a relative of mine where, uh, like all of us, his life was complicated, but essentially he was a man who had given himself to the service of God. And so it was not difficult to find what I think is sort of the 
primary mood of a Christian service, which is thanksgiving. Hmm. We give thanks for the gift of life, the gift of life hmm. as experienced in this particular life in particular ways. But the place of deep joy came in that funeral when we used the piece of a creed that was written for the Southern Presbyterian Church many years ago, in which it claimed, we consider death to be a broken power. Wow. And that affirmation just washed all over me, and mm. it moved me uh, to tears, but not tears of grief at that point, but tears of joy that this life had been enveloped by a gospel so strong that even death is a broken power. Hmm. And so, precisely in the encounter with death and bringing one of your own, one mortal, bringing another mortal before God, to make that confession in that context, it's yeah. powerful. You know, a Christian Funeral recognizes that capital D death, which is the final enemy, loves to go to funerals and shows up at every single one and loves to preach and preaches, you know, I win every time. Mm -hmm. You want evidence? Look, mm -hmm. it is our duty and our delight to be able, as both as a congregation and as a preacher, to stand up and shake our fists in the face of death and say, oh, death, where's your sting? Where's your power? Hmm. You're a broken power. In a sense, precisely in the context of the body being there, of being exactly. present with the reality of death, it makes that Christian confession all the more powerful right. and resonant. Wow. You cannot have Elizabeth. You do not have Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. we, are, we are here to give her back into the hands of the God who made her. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for your work on this really crucial subject. I know my students who are now in ministry have really appreciated it. One of them said to me just a week ago, yeah, nobody's influenced me on the funeral more than Tom Long. And yeah. so well, thank you. I appreciate it. And thank you for joining me for this conversation. It was a pleasure, Todd. Thank you for listening to the End of the Christian Life podcast. In this final episode, I have a question for you. Have you enjoyed this podcast? Would you like to hear more interviews like this one? Let us know by filling out the form linked in the episode description. Thanks and peace to you.